Well, happy Easter, church. How are we doing this morning? Good. You look good. I'm so glad that you're here this Easter morning. If you've got your Bible, would you grab it um, and go to Matthew chapter 26? If you don't have a Bible, then you can reach out in the chair back in front of you, and you can grab one of those Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible at home, that, that it's in a translation that you can understand. This is our gift to you, all right? So if your Bible at home looks like it was written by Shakespeare, you know, a lot of these before thines, except after thou, then you can just take this one. Uh, it's an ESV version. It's something you can understand. Now, if you have like seven of our gifts at your house, we'd love for you to bring like six back and just keep the one gift that we have for you. Or if you would like a nicer Bible, you can go to our Lost and Found and you can get a leather-bound Bible with somebody else's name on it. Because... Um, when you leave your sunglasses, you call us, but when you leave your Bible, you let us keep it. So they're yours too. I uh, want to thank you so much for being here. If you're just a, kind of an Easter only person, we're so glad that you're here. Of all the services to come to all year, this would be the one to be at. So we're super stoked that you're here. Uh, just to warn you, I was an Easter only person growing up. I didn't grow up in church and look what happened to me. So uh, you never know how this might end up for you. We are in a uh, seven week series. Today's the last day. We've been all through Lent, we've been praying and fasting and giving and getting ready for Resurrection Sunday. We've been talking about the seven deadly sins, and today, I specifically saved this sin for today. C.S. Lewis calls it the great sin. Um, In fact, all sin, well, if you look in the Bible, there's not like a list of seven deadly sins. All sins are deadly. The, The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But these seven particular sins... Are, are, are sins that kind of hang a lot of us up, um, as the great theologian and JV football coach Bull Lee would say, if you don't want to fall down, don't walk in slippery places. And this is a particularly slippery place this morning. C.S. Lewis calls it the great sin, the chief of all sins. He says this, he says, I now come to the part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. But I do not think I've ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian, who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There's no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice that I am talking of is pride. It leads to all other vices. It was pride that made the devil the devil. So this morning, we are going to talk about pride. Now, C.S. Lewis says it's the heart of, hardest of all sin to recognize in yourself. So if you just found out, like when you got the bulletin and you saw pride there, and you thought, whoo, well, I don't have to worry about this one, but man, I wish my mother-in-law was here, then you've just convicted yourself of the very sin that we're talking about today, the chief of all sins, pride. Pride is when we think too highly of ourselves, and, and oftentimes we're like, well, you know, I don't really think too highly of myself, I think rightly of myself. But what you think about yourself is often in comparison to those around you. And so you think, well, I'm pretty good because you know why? Compared to my roommate, I am awesome. And you're right. I've met your roommate. roommate. They're, they're a jerk, okay? That's just how it works out. But when you compare yourself to a perfect and almighty God, it's actually worse than you think. We'll cover that in just a little while. Um, pride is when you take credit for things that God did. You know, you take credit for things that you didn't do. 
Pride is, the, the ultimate form of pride is when you run your own life. When you say, you ain't the boss of me, and especially you ain't the boss of me, that I've got this. I am Lord of my own life. It is the chief of all sins. And so, in Matthew chapter 26, we are going to look at this picture of Jesus in perfect humility. And we're going to start in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you've been around Bible study before, you've heard of that. We're going to start in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's going to take us about 50 minutes to walk all the way through to Resurrection Sunday. And we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 26. Now listen, um, I got a lot to cover here. If, if you brought a guest and you said, oh, this is going to be great, he's so funny. I will not be funny today. Next week will be really funny. Come back next week. But today we're busy, okay? So Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. Jesus has come to Jerusalem, you remember last week with Palm Sunday, and he's never leaving Jerusalem. He's going to die on a cross at the end of this week. And so they just had the Lord's Supper. They've had all these incredible things that happened in Holy Week. And then we pick it up in Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. This was, um, this was an olive grove on the side of a hill. And he and his disciples, he said, sit there while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The reason that Jesus, in this time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the reason that he begins to feel sorrow and troubled is because he knows what's at the end of his road, which is the cross. And the sorrow and trouble is all about the fact that he is beginning to feel the weight of our sins upon his shoulder. And so he begins to feel sorrowful and troubled, verse 38, and then he said to them, to his disciples, he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. You see, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the almighty creator God, the Lamb of God, who spoke into existence all things that are, that by his very power hold the earth on its axis, cause it to rotate and go around the sun. That same God, the almighty, omnipotent, omniscient, everlasting God, is to the point where he feels like he might not make it through the night. That his soul is so crushed, that it's so sorrowful, that he feels like he is about to die. Why? Because he knows that he is about to have the sins of all humankind in past, present, and future sin heaped upon his shoulders. And because of that, he will be made sin and he will have to endure the full wrath of the just judge, God. And he's telling his disciples, I feel like this is gonna kill me. I don't know if I'm gonna make it through the night. Hey, listen, in our little Jacksonville Bible Belt Christian bookstore world that we live in, don't let people say some dumb stuff to you like God will never give you more than you can handle. That is not a Bible verse. That comes from second opinions or third hesitations. It is not in the Bible. Jesus' experience is the opposite of that. I don't think I can handle this. And so he's asking his boys, can y'all just stay up and pray with me for a little bit because I think I'm going to die. Verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed. He did not kneel down and pray. He fell, not trip and fall. But the weight of the sin of the world is heaped upon the shoulders of Jesus here this is what he's praying about in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was too much for him to bear, and he falls down and he prays. This doesn't mean like he's just saying his prayers. The book of Luke says that he sweats like drops of blood. 
This is like a soul-anguishing prayer. This is not kneeling down next to your bed and praying. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. By the way, parents, I hope you're not praying that one with your kids. That's the dumbest prayer ever, ever. I can remember going, praying that prayer as a first grader and saying, Mom, what is happening tonight that I might not make it through? Should we call the police? I mean, if I should die before I wake, wow. And then, in fact, I didn't even know what fascia die meant. I didn't know it was three words. I thought my mom was praying in tongues. I was like, what's fascia die mean? She's like, no, nah, baby, if I should die. Why are you talking about death again? I'm in the first grade. Leave me alone. So we're not talking about little prayers like that. We're talking about a man, the man God, who knows, who knows what's before him, the cross. That he would endure the full wrath of God. And so he falls down on his face. And he prays. And he cries out. And he says, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup? What does that mean? He understands that the cup equals the wrath of God. Okay, Jesus, if what be possible? If the redemption of all mankind is possible in any other way, if the redemption of all mankind is possible in any other way, then, then Father, if it be co- possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you, as you will. In other words, what he's saying is what Jesus is, is, is praying here is, God, I know what your will is. Your will is that all people would come to know you. And so in some translations, it translates it this way. If there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. God, if there's, Father, if there's any other way that men and women could be in a right relationship with you, if there's any other way where men and women could have their sins forgiven and they could be adopted into your family, if there's any other way that people could go to heaven when they die, then can we go with that plan? Because if there's another way, then why would I have to die on the cross? Let's not do that. So if if you can just obey the Ten Commandments and be good enough on your own, if that way works, God, can we go with that way? Or if you can just kind of become one with nature, can we go that way? Or if you can just align your chakra or go to Mecca, or if there's another prophet coming after me that can point people to you, God, if there's any other way. Do you realize what he's praying here? He's essentially saying, hey, look, Father, if Oprah's right and all roads just lead to heaven, can we just wait on Oprah and I don't have to go to the cross? Can we do it that way? Then he says, not my will, but your will be done. Listen, I have people that come to me and say, hey, listen, my problem with Christianity is this. How in the world can you believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one gets to the Father except through him? Like, I know. I didn't make it up. I'm just quoting him, John 14, 6. And they say, well, isn't that a little narrow? And I go, oh, my goodness, it's embarrassingly narrow. I mean, I'm with you. It makes it super awkward for me sometimes and other people. So you telling me Jesus is the only way? Mm-hmm. Is it narrow? Yeah. And I'll tell you, if it was up to me, I think I would just call an all skate. All right, all skate. Everybody on the floor, come on in. What do you believe? It doesn't matter. Come on in. All right. As long as you're a pretty good person, you know, that'd be great. Let's all let's all jump in. But see, <laughs> I can overlook sin because I'm so sinful. I can overlook your sin and I can forgive you of your sin because I am not almighty and perfect and glorious. But an almighty, perfect, holy, and just God, because his glory is so important, he cannot just overlook sin. It would make him unjust. 
It would make him unjust. And so all sin must be paid for. And the only payment would be a perfect payment. The woman would have to live a sinless life and then pay the debt that you and I cannot pay. And so Jesus knows that's what he's praying about. So God, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way for people to know you, to be in a right relationship with you, then let's go that way. But not my will. Here's perfect humility. Not my will, but your will be done. You know what pride says? Pride says, forget your will. My will be done. I will be Lord of my own life. But Jesus in the garden, he prays for God's will. Not as I will, but as you will. For you King James folks, not my will, but thy will be done. And what is the will of God? What is God's will? If you look at 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6, don't look it up, you can just trust me. It says this, it says, This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires or wants or wills or delights, whose desire is that all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So what is the will of God? The will of God is that all people would be reconciled unto God. Do you know that you're in a church right now that's a movement for all people? For those of you that think you're good and those of you that think you've been too bad, guess what? You fall under the all people category. And God's desire, God's will, is that all people would know Him as Heavenly Father, would surrender their life unto the Lordship of Christ and be reconciled and adopted into the family of God. In First Peter, in Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9, the Bible says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing or wanting or willing, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That you and I are here today because God wishes that not one of us in this place or in the sanctuary or listening online or any person who's, who ever took a breath today He doesn't wish that any of them would perish, but all of us would come to a saving relationship with our Heavenly Father through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, He's praying, okay, God, I know Your ultimate will is that all people everywhere would know You as Heavenly Father. And now I understand that the way for that to happen is for me to die on a cross. You see, if, you, if you'll back up in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah is a prophet that is going to prophesy about the crucifixion of Jesus 700 years before Jesus is ever praying this in the garden. And so the reason that Jesus is so sorrowful is because he knows Isaiah 53. He doesn't just know Isaiah 53 as a rabbi would have memorized it, but he is God and helped inspire Isaiah to actually write these words down about what Jesus would be enduring in the Garden of Gethsemane 2,000 years later and upon the cross. In Isaiah 53, it's like we get to peel back the curtain and not just see the physical suffering that Jesus is enduring, but we get to see kind of behind the curtain into the spiritual realm of what Jesus is doing on the cross. And so in Isaiah 53, verse 4, it says, Surely he, this is talking about the suffering servant, Jesus himself. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But he, that's Jesus, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. There is a lot in that verse there. First and foremost, we'll start here. Did you realize that you and I, we are transgressors? Yeah, we are transgressors. We are, um, we are full of iniquities. That you and I are sinners. Sinners. You're not just a mistaker. You haven't just made some poor decisions. But actually you, and I mean this in the best way possible, that you are a wretched, black-hearted sinner. And, and if you're a guest here and you're like, oh, well, I am offended. How dare you call me a sinner? You don't even know me. Oh, my God. It's actually worse than you think. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that you would be offended by that reveals the wretchedness and black-heartedness of your own soul. I mean, the heart of the problem is you've got a problem in your heart. And listen to how I know. Don't you realize you are your worst enemy? Has anybody lied to you more than you? Has anybody broken more promises to you than you? You remember when you promised yourself and God and anybody else that would listen while your girlfriend was holding your hair back? If you'll get me out of this one, I'll never do this again. Remember the third time you prayed that and promised that? Over and over and over. Isn't it revealed to you? Houston, we have a problem. And no matter how much I try to control the outside, there's something deep in here that is the problem. That you and I are not just mistakers in need of a life coach, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And so, he says that he was pierced for our transgressions. Maybe the most important word in that phrase is for. That you and I have a problem, and there's really nothing we can do about it on our own. But Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. What Isaiah is doing here is connecting what he does on the cross for us. And it also says that he was pierced for our transgressions. This was written in 700 years before the crucifixion. 200 years before crucifixion was even invented. Nobody had been pierced for punishment yet. And the prophet, prophet Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions. Do you want to know how bad your sin is? Well, we won't even talk about you. Maybe you're awesome, okay? I know you think you are. I, I, I'm a wretched, black-hearted sinner. That my sin, my sin is so bad that Jesus Christ had to die on the cross for it. And when I look at the depravity of my own sinfulness, it makes me want, it just stirs in me worship for God that he would choose me anyway. I don't get it. I know I don't deserve it. And I know me. I know me. I know nobody has lied to me more than me. I know my selfishness. I know how many people I have abused. I know how many people I've tried to lie to to make me look better. I know how many people I've tried to use for my own benefit. I know how many times I've disobeyed and lied about it. I know the depths of my depravity. And yet what Isaiah 53 says, and he was pierced for my lying, and that he was crushed for my selfishness, and that upon him was the chastisement that I deserved, and it brings me peace, and with his wounds, that he was wounded because of the way I've abused people with my mouth and my actions. And then he took the penalty that I deserved. Verse 6. You see why Jesus is is struggling here in this prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane. That, that he, is, 
he understands what the cup of the wrath of God is. That your sin and my sin, it's a big deal. Our sin against an almighty God is so big that it kills the perfect son of God. Verse 6, all we, this is us, all we like sheep have gone astray. Now here's the problem. In Jacksonville, in our Bible Belt, you know, Christian bookstore kind of community, when we hear about Jesus and the sheep, we think like Swedish Jesus comes over with his perfect bathrobe and his Miss America sash and his blonde hair with no split ends. And he's like, oh, look, a sheep. And he picks up his little pet sheep, and that's us. And it's fluffy and it's white. He just pets it, and that's you. It's like, oh, there's Jesus and his sheep. Hey. And, you know, your friends, and you're playing catch and fetch and whatever. And that sheep are lovely and smell nice and they're downy fresh and good to cuddle with at night while you take naps. But when the Bible calls us a sheep, it's actually an insult. Do you realize that sheep are the dumbest animal on the planet? Did you know that? Did you know that every other animal on the planet has a fight or flight mechanism, but not a sheep? The sheep is the only animal that has a, hey, what's that? Until it's dead. That's what a sheep does. That a sheep is covered from head to toe in this Velcro material so that every predator can make sure it gets a good hold of it while it takes it to its death. That the Bible says, like in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down by green pastures. You know why? Because a sheep is the only animal that cannot distinguish between poisonous and non-poisonous food. They just eat what's in front of them. Or he makes me to drink from still water. Did you realize a sheep is so dumb that he'll stick his head into the rushing water. It'll get filled up uh, with the water in his wool and it'll drag him in and he will drown trying to get something to drink. That's you. That's me. So the Bible says we all like dummies have gone astray. Loose translation, but that's what it means. Like we're helpless. We're helpless. We need a shepherd. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We have a pride issue. And when we turn to our own way, we essentially say to God, I got this, I don't need you. I've got this. I got my life, I got my soul, I got my eternity. I don't need you. I don't need your church. I don't need your religion. I don't need your cross. Maybe some other people that need some help. Maybe they need to be rescued and redeemed. But I got this. And we, like sheep, have gone astray and turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 8, but oppression and judgment, by oppression and judgment he has taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off? of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. This was prophesying the fact that Jesus would be crucified between two thieves and that he would be buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, a rich man. Although he had done no violence, and yet there was no deceit in his mouth. So by word and by deed, Jesus was innocent and he died a sinner's death. And then verse 10, verse 10 will blow your mind. It says, yet, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. How in the world could a good and perfect dad delight in crushing his son? What is that all about? 
You see, at first glance, it's very, very confusing. But you have to understand that all throughout the Bible, up into this place, into Isaiah, and actually all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation, there are two primary themes that really seem at odds with each other in the Bible. One theme, especially in the Old Testament, is the glory of God, that God loves God's glory. And for God to love anything less than his own glory would actually be idolatry because every good and perfect gift is from him. That he is the almighty, he is the omnipotent, he is holy, he is spotless, he is the only one worthy of our worship and our praise. And anytime we make glory about anything other than him, it's death. Why? Because he is the only almighty and God is about God's glory. And then as a parallel track, but all throughout the Bible, God loves his people, his sinful, wretched people people he had he has this unfailing love for his people and it seems at odds with his glory his glory is perfect and he is just and he is right and he is righteous and yet we his people are idol factories and yet even though we choose to sin even though we go our own way he pours out on us mercy and love and grace, and he sends every good and perfect gift to us. And he sends his word, and he sends prophets, and ultimately he sends his son, Jesus Christ. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, those two themes, the glory of God and the love of his people, they cross. They cross at the cross. In that vertical beam of the glory of God, in that horizontal beam of God's love for his people, Christ stretches out his arms and those two things are reconciled once and for all and Christ dies on the cross for the glory of God and to demonstrate his love for you and me. And it's in that that God, that the will of the Lord would be to crush him, that he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. This is prophecy that Jesus won't stay in the grave, but that he will be resurrected and his days will be prolonged into eternity future. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, verse 11, and out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. This is what Jesus is doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. The reason he's crying, the reason he's sorrowful, the reason that he's sweating blood is it's not just about the physical death that he is about to endure. Yes, it was excruciating. Yes, he was beaten and nailed to a cross. And and yes, it was physically excruciating. But all throughout church history, um, Christian martyrs have gone to their death in the name of Jesus. And some went with a courage and and with a braveness. It's unbelievable. I mean, church historians tell us that that there are martyrs that go to to be burned at the stake and they sing on their way. So would you think that these people are tougher than Jesus? Absolutely not. Here's the thing that Jesus had to endure that no Christian martyr has ever had to endure. Is that when a martyr went to their death, they could kill the body, but they could not touch the soul. But what Jesus is, is enduring here is the anguish of the soul because he's taking on the punishment for my sin and for your sin. And so this is what Jesus is living out in Matthew 26. And he's, he knows Isaiah 53. And out of the anguish of the soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And then this next verse is about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. It says, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus, make many, this is us, to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Did you get that? 
Paul explains it in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 this way, that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that, would we, that we would be made his righteousness. It's substitutionary atonement. Atonement just means to pay for. That means the perfect, spotless Lamb of God paid for our sin, and we get his righteousness. It's the great exchange. And it was excruciating for Jesus. That's where the heaviness comes from. That's where the sorrow comes from. Because he's going to hang on a cross and endure the wrath of God to take away our sin. So back to Matthew 26, Jesus is praying in the garden and this is the intensity of the prayer. And pick it up in verse 40 again. It says, then he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, so you could not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 42. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. You ever pray and you get an answer you don't want to get? So he goes back to God. Okay, Father, I'm going to give you another chance here, okay? A little multiple choice prayer, Lord. You do this too, right? You get a verse. Like, I don't like that one. Let me find another one, right? <laughs> My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, what's your will, Father? It's that all men would come to know you, and the only way for that to happen is for their sins to be dealt with. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, 44. So, leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for a third time, saying the same words. Are you sure, God? And it's clear to him that he is the only way. Verse 45. And then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And in that moment, Judas, one of his closest friends, betrays him with a kiss. Betrays him with a kiss. And the events start rolling. And then Peter... Peter swells up like Peter often swells up and pulls out a sword. And the Bible says he chops this guy's ear off. Swing, just the ear falls off. And probably what he's doing is overcompensating from the conversation that he just previously had with Jesus. You see, um, just a little while before all of this starts to take place, Peter starts bowing up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I would never leave you. I would never forsake you. I'll follow you wherever you go. I would die for you. And Jesus says, bro, you ain't even going to make it through the end of the night without denying me three times. And Peter's like, watch this. I ain't denying nothing. Pulls his sword out, swing, chops that dude's ear off. And you know, Jesus was like, really? Three years we've been doing this together? Have we ever chopped people's ears off as a part of the strategy of the redemption of the world? Come here, earless guy. Huh? Come here, come here, come here. Puts it back on his head. Peter says, look, man, I mean, he says, Jesus says to Peter, you know, I, I could stop this if I wanted to. They arrest Jesus. They take him to trial. They're bouncing him around all over the city. Peter, the Bible says, follows kind of closely. And somebody comes up to Peter and says, Peter, hey, you sound like you've got kind of a country accent. Do you think, are you a disciple of Jesus? And he's like, I don't know him. And then a second time, that same night, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I think I recognize you. Aren't you one of his disciples? Ah, uh-uh, wasn't me. And then the third time, a junior high girl comes up to Peter and says, I think I recognize you as a disciple. Are you a disciple of Jesus? And the Bible says that Peter curses and says no. Peter says, what the? And says a bad word. No. <laughs> it's in the Bible, Baptist. Y'all got to read it, okay? Got to read your Bible. And sure enough, boom. Rooster crows, and he realizes that he's done exactly what Jesus said he was going to do. 
And then they start bouncing Jesus all around to these different court systems because nobody wants to be the dude that sentences the guy that claims to be the Son of God that brought people back from the dead, that walked on the water, turned water to wine, that, that made all the fish sandwiches for all those thousands of people. Nobody wants to be the guy that sentences him to death. And so finally, Pilate brings Jesus out in front of all the people and said, what shall I do with this man named Jesus? And the crowd condemns him. Crucify him, kill him. So they take Jesus Christ, an innocent man, and they flog him. And when we used to read that in the Bible, you know, you just kind of read right by the flogging until the Passion of the Christ came out and we got maybe a picture of what it was actually like. Many, many people did not survive the flogging. So they would strip him down and they would whip him. And then they took a crown of thorns and they jammed it down on his head because he said he was the king of the Jews, even though his kingdom was not of this world. And they dressed him in a robe of purple to mock him and then they put his cross on his own back to carry outside of Jerusalem to this hillside, this place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Nothing new. They crucified literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people there. And it was brutal and it was excruciating. But even more than that, even more than the physical torture that he was bearing, he was bearing your sin and my sin. And it was not the nails that held him to the cross. It was my sin and your sin. And they put Jesus between two thieves. And the crowd is spitting at him and cursing him. And he says these really unbelievable things on the cross. You should read it. He says seven things on the cross. He says, he says Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Would not be my first thought. He says, I thirst. And they put some wine vinegar in his face. He sees his mom there. And he says, John, come here. Take care of my mama. He gets John to take care of his mom. Then he has this conversation with the two thieves on either side of him. They were rightfully convicted. And one of the thieves says, hey, dude, if you really are who you say you are, then prove yourself and save you, and then why don't you go ahead and save us too? And then the guy on the other side, the other thief's like, bro, you know who you're talking to? This is the Son of God. Jesus, remember me this day before you go, your, go to your Father in paradise. And you know what Jesus says to this man? Jesus doesn't say, have you been baptized? You've got to start going to church. You've got to get in a disciple group. None of that. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. If anybody in the whole Bible ever made it to heaven, we know that guy on the cross made it to heaven. And that guy, you know what? You know what he did for Jesus? Nothing. Because when you're on the cross, what you going to do? Jesus, from now on, I'm going to, you ain't going to do nothing. You're dead today. You can't even make it to the weekend service, all right? It's over today. Then the sky turns black, he looks up at heaven and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You really want to blow your mind this afternoon? Read Psalm chapter 22. In the 22nd Psalm, David writes that a thousand years before Jesus quotes it, the first line of Psalm 22 is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then you get a play-by-play through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, written a 1,000 years before he was actually crucified and written 500 years before crucifixion was even invented. Nobody had been crucified before. And it explains it. And then the last words of Psalm 22 is, it has been done or it is finished. Then Jesus pushes up on those nail-pierced feet feet and he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then he says, it is finished. And when he says it is finished, there is an earthquake in Jerusalem, 
And there was this curtain between the common people like me and you out in the court of the temple and the Holy of Holies that represented the very presence of God. And that curtain from the very top to the very bottom was torn in two. And so when he said, it is finished, what was finished was the will of God. Exactly what he'd been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus accomplished Isaiah 53 prophecy, that our iniquities were laid upon his shoulder, that our transgressions were laid upon his shoulder, and by his stripes and by his wounds, we are healed. That's what had been finished. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says it this way. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And when Jesus died, he paved the way for the forgiveness of our sin, that the just judge almighty God heaped the punishment that we deserved Unto Jesus, and he endured the full wrath of God. But today's Easter. Today's Easter Sunday. And so we are not here to celebrate the, the crucifixion and the persecution of Jesus because that's not the end of the story. You see, the end of the story is on Easter Sunday when the disciples go to the empty tomb. He's not there anymore. That you and I do not worship a dead Messiah or a dead prophet. That Jesus didn't die on the cross to be a good example for us, but Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected from the grave. And the cross pays for our sin, but the resurrection from the grave purchases for us a new life. That because Jesus is alive and is not dead, that you and I can be adopted into the family of God and we can be co-heirs with the almighty King of kings and Lord of lords. That one day we will reign on high with our brother Jesus because the the tomb is empty. Can I get an amen? Come on. And so in Philippians 2, it keeps going. It says, therefore, because he died in our place, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so at the cross and resurrection, the glory of God and the love of God comes together at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so... If you have ever surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, I've got good news that you have been imputed with the very righteousness of God. So when I look at you and I say that you are a wretched, black-hearted sinner, that's actually past tense. That's not who you are anymore. Because of the resurrected Christ reigns in your heart, you are actually the righteousness of God. That you and I are sons and daughters of God. Can you believe that? So you're amazed you're even at church. I know, me too. I can't believe I'm a preacher at one, all right? And I'm more than a preacher. I'm more than a conqueror. I'm a son of the Most High God. That all that stuff that he had to pay for has been paid for. So if somebody pays your debt, you don't owe anything anymore. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is the glory of Easter. Amen? Amen. It changes everything. And so... From this point on, the disciples, they're a little slow on the uptake, all right? Three days later, the stone is rolled away. Jesus gets up from the grave, bodily resurrected, his physical body resurrected. 
And he begins to appear over 40 days to over 500 people in the city that he was crucified in. And the church begins. And so some of the disciples, they go to the, they go to the empty tomb. And, and, and I'm telling you, they really are sheep, okay? If, if you have a hard time understanding like this whole God thing, you're going to make a great disciple because they missed the main point of the whole thing. They show up to the empty tomb, and, they, and they're looking around for dead Jesus. And so one of the angels says, why do you look for the living among the dead? And they're like, I don't know. We thought you'd be here. And you know, he's like, are you not paying attention? It's like the most important part of all of his sermons. He was going to die on the cross, and three days later, he was going to rise from the dead. And they're like, oh, we didn't hear that part, all right? And then Jesus begins to appear to different people all over the place. And then in John chapter 21, go to John 21. It's my favorite event of the post-crucified, resurrected Jesus Christ. He, he, earlier, he had gathered the disciples together, and, and, and he said, you know, just kind of hang out in this room. You're going to get the Holy Spirit, and then the church is going to explode at Pentecost. But, but that's not going to happen yet. I'm going to appear to some people and to prove once and for all that death is over for anyone who is in Christ. And so Peter and the disciples, they don't know what to do. You know, they're probably still scratching their head because Jesus hadn't fully laid out the Great Commission and all those things. And they said, what are we going to do for a living now? Nobody's going to pay us to follow the dead rabbi, you know. So we got to do something. We got to make a living. And so Peter says, why don't we go fishing? So this wasn't like a hobby. This was Peter returning to his old lifestyle. And a bunch of other disciples go, sure, let's go fishing. We'll go with you. And so they go out that night and they go fishing. This is all in John chapter 21. And these professional fishermen fish all night long and they catch nothing. Wake up early in the morning, and they look over on the shore, and there's Jesus. But they don't know it's Jesus yet. It's just some dude. And he yells out to them, hey, did you catch anything? They're like, no. Guys, don't you hate it when you go fishing, and your wife's like, did you catch anything? Like, woman. <laughs> you know I'd have texted you some pictures if I'd have caught something. You know, trying to <laughs> tell somebody. And then they say super awesome, like, you know, you don't even have to buy a boat. You can just go to Publix, and they're pre-caught. You're like, come on, girl. I'm just trying to be like the disciples. <laughs> and so this guy on the shore turns out to be Jesus, but they don't know what yet. And he's like, hey, did you catch anything? They're like, no, nah, we didn't catch nothing fishing all night. And he goes, well, try the other side of the boat. Can you imagine what they're thinking? Seriously, dude. You think we just been fishing on this side? Like, no, keep trying. I think they're over here. Man, we've tried this side and that side and the edge and the middle. We've tried all the things to try. But for whatever reason, they're like, okay. And they throw it over on this side of the boat. You know, I went fishing on Friday with my friends Chuck and Brad. And we were all fishing on this side of the boat. And I felt like Jesus told me, try the other side. So I casted it on the other side. And look what Jesus helped me catch right there. Booyah, right? Now, that doesn't have anything to do with the sermon. I just want y'all to see my big old fish. Isn't that great? All right. So back to the story. So there they are. You got the nets, and they throw them on this side, and all of a sudden, boom, they hang up on 153 fish. You know why there was 153 fish? Neither do I. You make up whatever you want, okay? I start to drag them in. Actually... They think there's 153 species of fish. I think it's another example that this is a movement for all people, all right? All people, whether you're a catfish or holy mackerel, anybody in between, this thing's for you. And so they got the 153 fish. And then the Bible says in John 21, 7, the disciple that Jesus loves says to Peter, it's the Lord. 
And the disciple that Jesus loved is John. The interesting thing about this is the only place that John is called the disciple that Jesus loved is in the book of John that was written by John. Isn't that great? <laughs> so if you want to make up a nickname for yourself, then rock on. Okay, and so John says, look, fellas, this smells like Jesus to me. I mean, we had no fish. Now we got 153 fish. I think that's Jesus on the shore. And so Peter fishes without a shirt on, all right, because he's redneck. And so he puts his T-shirt back on, and he dives in, and he goes, and he swims up to the shore to have Jesus. And, you know, the other disciples, they've got to haul in the, the big catch of fish. And then he gets up on the shore. And this is how you know that Jesus is not from the north, all right, he's country through and through, because he says, they, they're going to have a fish fry for breakfast. Glory to God, right? Come on, people. And so they all gather up, and Jesus says, hey, bring some of the fish that you caught. Now, it's kind of hard to have a lot of pride when you're sitting there with Jesus, and he says, bring the fish you caught. Because who caught the fish? I don't think we caught any. I think you caught them all. And then also, the resurrected Jesus. Last time we saw you, you were on a cross, and now you are here bodily resurrected, about to eat some fish with us. And they had this breakfast together. Now, ghosts don't eat breakfast. You know that, right? That the physical resurrected Jesus is hungry, so he eats some breakfast. And then he kind of, after they eat some breakfast, and all the disciples, they know it's him because they can just recognize him. And so then he kind of pulls Peter aside and says, Peter, come over here. I want to talk to you for a second. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter's like, oh, shucks, Jesus, you know I love you. He goes, all right, well, feed my lambs. So Peter, I want to ask you something. Do you love me? Jesus, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. All right, one more time, Peter. Peter, do you love me? Now, see, Peter's a little slow on the uptake, Okay. And he goes, oh, oh, okay, I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing. So I denied you three times. And so you're heaping upon me grace upon grace upon grace to reinstitute me as the rock. Yep, that's what I'm doing. So do you love me more than these? You know that I love you. Now feed my sheep. And then in John 21, 18, in John 21, 18, Jesus offers this invitation to Peter. Now, remember, we're talking about pride all morning, right? That pride, that the ultimate form of pride is being the Lord of your own life. And look at John 21, 18. After the prayer in the garden, after the denial, after the crucifixion, the resurrection, they're on the beach right after breakfast, and Jesus says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. Peter, you got a pride problem. You've been the Lord of your own life. And before you met me, you used to do what you want with who you wanted when you wanted. That you were the boss of you. That you essentially said, I got this. I don't need you because I got this. So when you were young, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. I don't know if you know this, but Peter, according to church history, died on a cross. And on his way to be killed in the name of Jesus, and they were taking him to the cross, Peter says, I am not worthy to die in the same manner of my Lord and Savior. And so they said, fine, we'll fix that. And they just turned his cross upside down. And so essentially what Jesus is saying is... Peter, it would be better for you to surrender your life to me in an end and in a horrific crucifixion death than it would be for you to be the Lord of your own life and live a long, healthy life here on this earth. Why? Because you cannot do for you what I have accomplished for you on the cross. It'd be better to surrender to me and die than to be the boss of your own life and live 
to be 80-something. And then he says these two words. Then he said to him, two words, follow me. Anybody want to take a guess of what the very first two words that Jesus says to Peter? Follow me. That's the invitation. The invitation is, Peter, you've got a pride problem because you've been the Lord of your own life. How about surrender your life and let me be the Lord of your life and then you follow me. You don't go where you want to go anymore. You follow me. And so these words, this invitation to Peter are the first two words he ever spoke to Peter. You know what we call that where I'm from? That's a do-over. You remember do-over? Remember you'd be playing kickball and you'd kick one all out of bounds and you could yell do-over and it didn't count against you and all the runners had to go back to the bases they were on and everything returned to as if it was before you messed everything up? Remember do-over? Did you not have brothers and sisters? That's what we did. Don't you wish we got do-over as an adult? Like the blue light comes on and you pull over and uh, could you step out of the car please? Do you know how fast you were going? You go do-over and you just take off. Peter gets the invitation of a do-over, but here's the beauty of the Jesus invitation of a do-over. It doesn't mean that you need another try at doing your life better. It means that you can trade in what you have done for what Jesus has already done on the cross. It's not about what you do, it's about what has been done because it is finished, the pressure is off. But often the greatest hurdle is our own pride. Here's the point, that ultimate pride is being the Lord of your own life. Humility begins by daily surrendering your life to Jesus. And the same invitation that Jesus offered Peter 2,000 years ago, he offers to you and he offers to me this very day. So the question is, are you prideful? And I don't mean like arrogant and take credit for stuff. Are you the Lord of your own life? Are you sitting on the throne of your own life? Are you saying to God, I got this, I don't need you? Well, if that's you, maybe for the very first time, you hear the voice of your resurrected Savior in the depths of your soul saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Okay. Then today is the day you surrender. Follow me. Step off of the throne of your own life and invite the Lord Jesus Christ to take his rightful seat as your Lord and your Savior. C.S. Lewis says it this way, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And what is above you is the almighty maker of heaven and earth has humbled himself to take our place on the cross. That whosoever, whosoever would surrender their life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, then he could be your Lord. So when Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done, that that offer is this day, that the will of the Father is that all of us, every single one of us in here and in the sanctuary and any person that woke up this morning, that the will of the Father is that by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you and I could humble ourselves before the Lord and receive that grace and receive that forgiveness and receive that eternal do-over that takes the pressure off of you because it has been accomplished at the cross. And we know that because he didn't stay dead, but he was resurrected on the third day. And that's why we celebrate Easter. You know, the angels asked the disciples, why do you look for the living among the dead? And so many of you have been looking for life and things that don't provide life. Today, you know what? Your very first Easter could be your very first Easter. And that you, like Christ, could be resurrected to a new life. 
you'll just receive the same invitation that he offered to Peter to follow him. Would you please bow your heads right where you are? And we ask you to bow your head, not because it's super spiritual or anything like that, but just to block out any distractions that you might have. And if you would say, that's me, I have been the Lord of my own life, and I am ready today to surrender my life to the Lordship of Christ. I am ready to receive that invitation from Jesus to follow him. I am ready to receive the forgiveness that he poured out for me on the cross and proved it by resurrecting from the grave. If you're ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ for the very first time, would you raise your hand where you are? Would you say, Father, here I am. Your will be done, not my will. I surrender my life to you. And your hand in the air does not make you a Christian or a magic prayer does not make you a Christian. For those of you with your hand in the air, you just pray whatever words God gives you, but you just admit that you need help, that you're a sinner, that you believe in the sufficiency of what Christ did on the cross to pay for our sin, and you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and you will be saved. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you, and we praise you for this Easter. God, we thank you that we don't follow a dead prophet with good moral teachings that just lived as a good example. But we follow a risen, living Savior who not only resurrected from the grave, but reigns on high at the right hand of God the Father that sends the Spirit of the Son to live in all of us who surrender our lives to you and that one day will come and take us home. That we can be rescued and redeemed, not by anything that we have done, but because it is finished, it has been accomplished. And that we could be adopted into the family of God sons and daughters of the most high king. God, I thank you and I praise you that you are alive in this place this day because it's only you that can change and transform hearts. And so God, we pray this in the only name that matters when you pray. We pray this in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you please stand? This is one of the most important parts of our service. This is when we respond And we do this on purpose so that you can kind of marinate in whatever it is the Lord has been working in you and through you and to you. And there's a few ways that we respond. One of the ways we respond is by joining our voices together and singing. The Bible talks often about how God is pleased when we sing His praises. We also respond, if you're a regular here, by bringing your tithes and offerings. We have giving boxes all around the room. If you'll notice, we didn't pass out a plate in front of you because we know that the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. So we don't want you to give under compulsion, but we want you to give out of a response of gratitude of what Christ gave for us in eternal life on the cross. And then many of us respond by coming down to the altar and physically humbling ourselves before our Lord and our Maker and surrendering once again this day to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So however the Spirit is moving you, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we're going to sing, and we're going to bring tithes and offerings, and we're going to come to the altar. Let us respond.